let me introduce myself in case we haven't met. My name is Heath. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, I have the privilege of um, preaching the word of God from John uh, chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. So let's read God's word, and then we will jump in and see what he has for us today. Here we go. John chapter 8, starting at verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where's your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Father, I thank you for your word Would you show us Christ by the power of your spirit through the word you have graciously given. We love you, we need you. It's in the name of Christ I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, some 17 years ago, um, my wife Marla and I, we were up on the side of a mountain in Jamaica and um, we were out on a terrace right there um, by this little villa, and we were looking south across the Caribbean Ocean, and it was a beautiful view. It was a a gorgeous view. But then suddenly, the sky shifted. This massive bulk of clouds moved, and the sun in full force shone upon the sea. And the scene before us just exploded with brilliance. The transformation was absolutely dramatic. It was a technicolor eruption, right? So the, the, the slate blue of the ocean, which had been beautiful before, was now set aglow. It was luminous. It was, it was translucent. It was, it was prismatic. I mean, colors were just exploding teal and, and turquoise and, and azure and, and cobalt. It just exploded before us. And, and even though we were high up on the mountain, we could see now into the water. So you could see a slow grade of sand here. You could see the deep drop-off over here. You could see sandbars over here. You could see the, the coral reef over here. And you could see a flashing school of fish moving about over here. We could see into the waters. So all those things were there, right? They were there before the, that light shone on it. But when that light struck, suddenly the goodness and the beauty and the truth before us, it just, it came, it came to life. And so, um, I, I mean, it's 17 years ago, and it just, it stuck with me, the immensity of it. Uh, there's a profound sense of, of 
awe in that moment. I just wanted to jump over the balcony, like run down the mountain, and then dive into the, the splendors of, of that sapphire sea. It was like this colossal uh, jewel uh, shining underneath you know, the high wattage of, of a jeweler's light. It just popped to life. And this recently happened again, which brought to mind the story from 17 years ago. Uh, we had the privilege of going to Hawaii a couple weeks back, and we were near um, a town called Lahaina there in Maui, and we were going to go snorkeling for the first time, and we are on the beach, you know, with our gear and everything, or looking out across the landscape, and it's gorgeous, right? The water's uh, beautiful. Um, Molokai, the island is across on the horizon, and it's, it's awesome. But then again, the skies moved, and the, the, the full force of the sun hit those waters, right? And it just came to life. Suddenly you could, you could see the life in there. You could see the turtles. You could see the fish. You could see the coral. So the beauty of what was before us came to light. The, the goodness of that sea life that was there. The, the truth of the, the depths. It just all came to life. Now, beauty, goodness, and truth. Um, these are what the ancients, uh, the philosophers, the sages called the transcendentals. Right? the good, the beautiful, and the true. And, and the nature of light is such that it shows and unveils and reveals that which is good and beautiful and true. But the corollary is light also reveals what? Yeah, the, 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 what's broken, what's ugly, what's false, what's destructive. And our author, John, who happens to be one of the first apprentices of Jesus, he's obsessed with light and darkness. And he weaves this theme of light and darkness throughout all of his writings. And so today we are going to see it again um, through the second I am statement. Now our text today has to do with um, not just the, the nature of light, but what I'll call the history or the redemptive history of light. So this theme is found in the second I am statement of Jesus. John recounts seven different I am statements where Jesus says I am and then fill, fill in the blank here. And, and he's saying these to reveal his identity. So these seven I am statements are seven ways in which Jesus is the Son of God. And so he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the vine. And with these repetitive I am's, Jesus is riffing off of this crucial moment in Israel's history when Moses is before God and before Yahweh, and he says, who's sending me to, to bring the people out of slavery? And God says, Yahweh, I am that I am, the self-existent one. So, today our sermon in a sentence, you might say, our crucial point is this in Q&A form. What does it mean that Jesus is the light of the world? What does it mean that he's the light of the world? And I believe a biblical answer from our text is this. Jesus is the visible presence of God who shines forth the truth, the beauty, and the goodness of who God is. Jesus is the visible presence of God who shines forth the truth, the beauty, and the goodness of who God is. So we'll see how this comes to light in our text. Now, uh, today we're going to focus on two key verses in that passage we just read, verses 12 and 20. So we're going to focus on verses 12 and 20 and do a little explanation of the verses in between. So let's pick up at verse 12. It says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
Now, when he says this, these words are loaded with history, and they are loaded with the hope of a nation, with the hope of a people. The religious leaders, known as the Pharisees, that they acknowledge the massive and radical nature of this claim. So when Jesus says this, they automatically push back. Hold on, Jesus. What you're testifying to isn't true. I mean, anybody can say they are someone or something. They're not. So where's the other witness? Our law says that you need two witnesses in order to establish a claim as verifiable and true, right? Anyone can say they are someone or something. Anyone can make a crazy claim. So Jesus says, look, first off, I testify to the truth because I know who I am and I know where I'm from. Where's he from? Heaven. And he says, I know where I'm going. Where's he going? Back to heaven to sit on the throne of the cosmos. He says, I know who I am. I know where I have came from. I know where I'm going. So my testimony is valid. You should really listen to me because I'm the king of the cosmos. Second, uh, I have another witness. And this witness is my father, and he testifies to the same thing. He says that I am the light of the world. Well, to this they say, <laughs> your father, where's this dad of yours? Show us, who is he? And then Jesus says, well, the problem is you don't know him. If you knew him, you'd know me. If you knew me, you'd know him. To know the father is to know the son. To know the son is to know the father. This is deep, beautiful Trinitarian theology just put out there by Jesus in a quick sentence. And so Jesus is saying that he is the physical expression of the heavenly Father, God in bodily expression, God incarnate, the one who ever was, ever is, ever will be, is now standing before them in flesh, blood, and bones. He is how we see God. He is, as Paul says in Colossians 1.15, the image of the invisible God. He is, as Paul says later in Colossians 1 verse 19, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is the light of God's glory, as Hebrews says. So how do they respond to these claims? Well, in short, they don't believe that Jesus is the light by which we see the Father. They resist him, right? The darkness doesn't know him. In fact, they scheme to snuff out this light of the world. So now let's do this. Let's explore this claim. I, I am the light of the world. What, what does it mean to be the light? Is this, is this just a universal and elemental metaphor that John uses because he knows light's a good thing? I mean, it grows plants. It gives us warmth. Right? We can't live without it. So is this just a universal uh, image that we can draw good things from? Well, partly, yeah. But it's way more than that. John isn't simply drawing on the nature of light. He is drawing on the history of God's people. He's pulling out a treasure from the treasure box of the corporate history of Israel and holding up a gem and saying, this is what this has been about the whole time. Me. I am the light. So um, what we need to do is look at the context for this passage because um, so often we miss the context for this passage and we skim over verse 20 which just seems a little bit like a throwaway concluding verse, so we just skip over it. But it's so important, okay? Here's what it says, verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. So he says these words, I am the light in the treasury in the, in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. 
It wasn't time for him to die. So this is a clue. John puts a clue in here to help us know what Jesus means when he says he is the light. So we need to do some scriptural detective work here. So we need to understand the context of this portion of the book. Now, um, in the book of John, in this big portion here, kind of in the middle, there's a big feast going on in Jerusalem. Do you guys recall the name of that feast? Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of of Booths, right? Because they're living in in tents, so to speak. So this was a week-long mega party. It was the seventh annual feast. So every year there'd be seven feasts. This was the seventh one, the culmination. It was a time of celebration, a time of harvest. It was a time where they remembered God's provision and protection in the time of the Exodus when they left slavery and when they're walking to the promised land. So they're they're celebrating this big feast, and what they would celebrate God's provision of manna, bread. They would celebrate God's provision of living water while they were out there in the desert, and they would celebrate God's provision of light that led the way. So during this time, there would be four massive um, golden oil lampstands that they raised there in the courtyard of the temple. We have a picture of them here. Um, These things, let's let's go to the next slide with the, the picture. There we go, yeah. So you can see these four massive lampstands. Those were about 73 feet high. And at night during this week, they would light these things. And they would illuminate the temple courts almost to the point where it felt like daylight. The light emanating from these, uh, these candelabras was so bright that the, the Mishnah, which is a, a commentary on Hebrew scriptures, so there was no courtyard, there was no street in all of Jerusalem that wasn't lit up by the light there in the temple courts. In fact, I, I like this next picture better because it gives you a sense of the intensity uh, of what, would it, what it would have looked like. It just would have been this blazing fire there up on Zion, lighting everything else. So the city was aglow. Right? The city was aglow. It was a blazing light at the temple, you know, pushing back the night. Now, question, where were these golden lampstands? What's this area of the temple called? Well, it's called the Court of the Women. And the other name for the Court of the Women was the Treasury. Okay, see how this is coming together now? It was known as the Treasury because there was 13 trumpet-shaped treasury boxes around this court where people would give money. So question then, where is Jesus when he says, I am the light of the world? What does our text tell us? He's in the treasury. So so think about the scene that's before you. The Feast of Tabernacles is in full swing. People are singing and dancing and eating, and at night they are lighting these blazing torches. These massive lampstands are right there, and they're towering in bright glory. And in the midst of this, Jesus gets up and he says, I am the light of the world, not these. Now suddenly... We have reference to understand what he's talking about when he says he is the light of the world. Why are these lampstands there? This will help us. Why do they put these 73-foot tall lampstands and spend all this time and effort to pour oil in them and light them all week long? Why are they there? A couple things. So first, let's do this. Let's rewind the history of Israel to the time of Exodus. So second book of the Bible, we're going way back. 
So let's rewind to Exodus, and more specifically Exodus 13, verses 17 through 22. I won't read that, but take note of that. You can read that later. So in short, God brings his people out of the darkness of slavery, right? Out of the bondage and oppression of being dehumanized and being physically destroyed. He parts the waters of the Red Sea. He leads his people through to freedom. And when God did this, his presence is with them in the form of a cloud, right? A pillar of of cloud during the day and a pillar of light or pillar of fire in the evening. So a few things about that. Why? Why, why, does, why does God show up in this way? Why is his physical or his manifest presence of his glory showing up in this way? So first, God was with them. He's showing, I'm with you. I'm not leaving you to figure this thing out. He was showing them his goodness, his presence as the pillar protected them from the Egyptians as they're heading through the water. The pillar of of cloud provided shade and shelter while they're wandering through the hot wilderness. That pillar of light of fire gave them warmth in the cold dropping temperatures of, of the desert as they traveled through the land. He was showing them in physical ways his goodness of how he would provide for them and how he would tend to them and care for them. Second, he was leading them on to the promised land. And how did they know where to go? Well, they were told to follow this pillar of, of cloud and light. Wherever it turned, they were to turn. It was their tour guide. In other words, this pillar of light, the light that went before them, was literally the way to life. It was the way to the promised land. He was leading them step by step. God himself was the way to true life, the way of living. And then third, again, don't miss this, the powerful, radiant presence of of God was shimmering there among the people. The beauty of God's love was dwelling with his people. It would have been an an awe-inducing sight that showed the marvelous, holy nature, quality, essence of God who was dwelling with them. And so the people remembered this, and so they, they built in this mnemonic device or the symbol to remember what God had done. So they raised these four candelabras every year, light them up, let the city you know, be ablaze to remember that God had provided the way. God had protected them. God was lovingly with them. The light represented God to the people. Okay, so next let's move to another scene in the history of israel that they're drawing on for this tabernacle ritual this is called the dedication of solomon's temple so if you go to second corinthians chapter 7 verse 1 through 3 again we're not going to read that in its entirety but you can read that later second chronicles second chronicles chapter 7 verse 1 through 3 so here's what's going on in that portion of scripture years after moses the people are in the promised land the, the promised land has been united under the efforts and under the kingship of King David. And then his son, King Solomon, is going to build this incredible temple. And he builds, he builds this mind-blowing, eye-catching, awe-inspiring temple that shined like a diamond upon Mount Zion. It was meant to be a city on a hill that literally the sunlight would hit and, and you'd be able to see it from miles around because of the white stone and the gold on it. And it was meant to be a city that people looked at and said, those are the people of God, those radiant people in that radiant city. So he, he builds this temple. 
And he dedicates this temple. And upon dedication of that temple, God's fiery manifest presence comes down and everyone just hits the deck, right? This fiery presence of God comes down and fills the temple. Now this presence is often called the Shekinah. You guys heard that word? The the Shekinah. It's a fun word. I mean, it almost sounds like sparkling flames. Like, just say it. Shekinah. Shekinah. So the Shekinah presence of God comes. The beauty of God shows up and floors everyone. The goodness of God is on display. He cares. He comes to dwell with his people. He wants to be with his people. By the way, this is so, so cool. This hit me in a new way this week as I was preparing for, for Abide on Friday night. Uh, Shekinah comes from a Hebrew word, which is shekan, which means to dwell. Shekan means to dwell in relationship. So in other words, God's shimmering, shining, glorious, illustrious presence comes to dwell with his people. And then the truth of his holiness, of his majestic otherness, a burning fire was on display. Now thirdly, if you keep moving forward, let's fast forward um, from Solomon um, to a prophet named Isaiah. Now here's what's going on at this point in history. God's holy people had not been that city on a hill that they were called to be. They weren't shining the light of God's love. They weren't living in a just and loving way. They were doing all sorts of unjust and unloving and, and wicked things. The people were acting more like the Pharaoh that they had once escaped. And so God says judgment's coming your way and he's going to purify them. And in fact, his Shekinah presence in Ezekiel picks up, leaves the temple. It's like a divine evacuation. He's like, I'm out. I'm gone. And then the people are going to go to exile in Babylon. But he's going to bring the people back and he's going to lift them up in love and glory. Right? He's still on a mission to dwell with his people. So at this point, the prophet Isaiah, he's looking forward to the, that day and that age when the Messiah comes. If that word's unfamiliar to you, just think of the hero. The hero who's going to come to make everything right. Isaiah's going to prophesy about the hero who comes to make everything right. To bring salvation to the darkness of the human heart. And we get this famous text in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. I'd like to read it here. Pay attention to the, the connects with John 8 that we just read. This says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That's the northern region of Israel that was first taken into exile. But in the latter time, that's when the Messiah comes, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Galilee should just have us triggering, right? Verse 2, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. To those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. What is this about? This is the new exodus. In the darkness of slavery and oppression, a new light will shine and lead the people out of slavery, out of oppression, out of darkness. And where does this light and its ministry begin? In Galilee. In Galilee, which is fascinating, don't have time for it, but at the end of chapter 7, the Pharisees are pushing against Jesus, and they're like, Galilee, no prophet has ever come out of Galilee. And if you read the text in, as a cohesive whole, they say no prophet has ever come out of Galilee, and you get to this point, Jesus is pushing back and going, 
the Messiah does. You don't know your scriptures like you think you do. So good. Jesus is awesome. Okay. So, so here's what's going on. At the Feast of Tabernacles, those lamps not only looked back to how God had saved them, right? They looked forward to how he would save them when the Messiah, when the hero would come to town. Now there's another one. There's so many of these, these Old Testament stories that are linked up with what's going on with these lamps at Tabernacles. I want to put one more forward to you. Um, I'll just kind of put it out there as a teaser and maybe you can dig into it more this week. But it's Zechariah chapter 14 verses 4 through 9. If you're new to the scripture, don't worry if you're like, I don't understand where all these, it's okay. But, but what I would love for you to see is that how this is one coherent, interconnected, beautiful story that points us to Jesus, okay? So that's the key thing. Look at Zechariah 14, 4 through 9. This is about the Messiah's arrival. So this is way before Jesus ever came. It says this, On that day, his feet, the Messiah's feet, shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. There shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and his name one. Now this is ultimately referring to when the Messiah will come back at the very end but it also refers to his first coming. So this is so fascinating. If you have time this week, just read a few verses before ours. I'm at the beginning of chapter 8 when Jesus is in this conversation with the Pharisees about the adulterous woman. There's this weird line in there. It says, and he went to the Mount of Olives. He went to the Mount of Olives. He's, his feet are standing on the Mount of Olives. John wants us to pay attention to that. And then Jesus claims what will pour through him? Living waters, Right? And then Jesus says he is the light, right, of for all the world. All these bits and pieces from Zechariah are weaving together. Jesus is saying, I'm here. Isn't that amazing? I'm, I'm here. And so all these stories, these haunts and these hopes, these are all loaded into the hearts and the minds of the people as they look upon these burning lamps at tabernacles. And there Jesus stands and he says, I am the shimmering presence of God. I am the one who leads you out of slavery and out of darkness into freedom and into joy. I am the ultimate expression of God's love for you that will reshape you, that will beautify you, that will transform you. I am the image of the invisible God. And this is for the whole world, right? Notice he, he says, he doesn't say, I am a light, right? What does he say? What does he say? I am the light. And he doesn't just stop there. He says, I am the light of the world. Number four, symbolically in scripture, has to do with geographic totality. Has to do with, um, like, think of the four corners of the earth. What does that mean? Everything, right? All the world. There's four of these lampstands to show that God will be the light of all the world. And then Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So, who is this Jesus? A good teacher? A great, a great prophet? A miracle worker? John wants us to see who Jesus is so badly. His whole book is woven together 
to ask this question, who do you say Jesus is? Who is he? Well, Jesus is the visible presence of God who shines forth the truth, the beauty, and the goodness of who God is. And to see Jesus is to see God. So, so many times people say, I want to see God. What is God like? How do we know what God is like? Because he's revealed himself in the perfect, ultimate expression, which is Christ himself. Jesus is the embodied brilliance of our heavenly Father. Now, if this is the case, that Jesus is the visible presence of God who shines forth uh, the truth and the beauty and the goodness of who God is, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Well, again, this is where we'll be going Yoda on you, the series. Um, first be and then do, okay? First be, then do. We need to understand that this is about identity, identity before doing. The identity of Jesus forms our identity as his people. Who he is shapes who we are. Right? Who our master is shapes who we are as apprentices of Jesus. And so who are we? We are apprentices of the light. We are apprentices of the light growing in his bright likeness, shining forth the truth, the beauty, and the goodness of who God is. Isn't this what Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount? What, is, what does he call his apprentices? You are the salt and the light, right? You are the salt and the light. A city set on a hill. It can't be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to who? Your Father in heaven. In other words, Jesus says, live brilliantly. Your life is not aimless. It's, it's not perfect. You are not a shade. You are not a phantom. You're not a specter kind of wafting through this life. You are a light bearer. And where you walk, reality is seen because the one who is light, he lives within you. Live brilliantly. Live brilliantly. This brings joy this brings this loving bravery to the way we live. I think of Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and salvation. Who should I fear? If he is the light that reveals how this world functions, if, if he is the one who shows forth goodness and beauty and truth and, and gives it to me by grace, who do, I, who do I have to fear in this world? No one. The light of Jesus shines on us transforming us into his likeness. And here's how it works. Union with Christ by the power of the Spirit. Christ died for us. Lived the life we couldn't live. Took the death we deserved. He rose from the grave. He's given us his spirit. He's breathed his life into us, which means we're united to this triune God through the person and work of Jesus by the power of the Spirit. We enter into this triune love. Union with God leads to then abiding with him, dwelling with the glorious one, being with him man. And then that leads to obeying what he says because he is the architect of truth. And we live in accordance. We live with the grain of reality. And then what does that then lead to? Us imaging him. We begin to shine more and more brightly because he is the light. And we begin to look like our master. Now, 
Verse 12, again, let's, let's speak it out one more time. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Remember Isaiah 9 said they walked in darkness. Here he says those who follow him won't walk in darkness. We're to follow him. And this word follow is just a fascinating word. Akalutheo, which is fun, fun to say. Don't need to know it. But the point is, um, it is a word that um, set within the word itself is the word road. In other words, to follow him means to walk the same road as him. To walk the same road as him or to be a path joiner. You join the path that he's on. And the point is this. Christianity is not simply some decision. It's not just some kind of abstraction or theological content. It is a way of living that is born of the miraculous union of of us with Christ. And then we live out this way, this way of love by being with him and obeying what he says it's a way of inhabiting this world it's not just something that we have in our head right we are saved by his grace and that grace empowers us to follow after him and to walk the way of jesus now in closing um i think back to those the shimmering waters of of the caribbean um, or the waters of the Pacific. And, and, and the beautiful scenery was there. The depth of that ocean, it was there. The goodness of that, that marine life, it was, it was there, right? But when the light struck those waters, it came to life. And in Christ, those of us who are made in the image of God, come to life the beauty and the goodness and the truth that God has put in you to bear his image on this earth goes from like a slate gray to this three-dimensional prismatic translucent glory and the world goes what is up with that guy why is she so different it's because they're living brilliantly not on their own strength but because they are gazing upon the glory of Christ and being in the radiance of who he is transforms us and lights us up. And this is the Christian life. It's to live brilliantly. And how does this happen? Well, Jesus climbed up on Calvary, right? He climbed up Calvary with the cross on his back to an ugly death. Insults and untruths hurled at him and then he entered into the darkness, literally the sky went dark because the light of the world was crucified. That very light of the world went into the darkness to save us from the darkness that we walked in. So Jesus is the light. He's the light that shows us what God is like. He's the shining truth. He is the final and complete revelation of God to man. In him we find a divine instruction. He is our wisdom. He is the way. And he's the shining beauty. And sometimes I think we as Christians miss this. We can be so, so, so dour and so serious and, and so joyless because we're not seeing the beauty. There's truth there. Yeah, he's done this, he's done this. And thank God because I'm a sinner. Yeah, but what about the beauty of who he is? Like when you see something beautiful, it just, it just, it's like it shocks you awake. 
And we are to see the beauty of Christ and to live out of that, to be captivated, to live in wonder and let joy move through our soul. And the shining goodness, he is the only one who can lead us out of the slavery of sin. He is the active light that conquers the gloom and the darkness in this world. He is our only salvation. So, because of who he is, because Jesus is the light of the world, who are we? We're quite literally the apprentices of light who are growing in his brightness, who shine forth the truth and the beauty and the goodness of who God is. Your life is so loaded with meaning and eternal importance. Like our brains just, they like short circuit when we try to fathom it. So if you're struggling with any sense of meaninglessness, of, of somehow not being seen, of your life being a waste, you need to speak this truth to yourself. You need to remember that he is the light and you are an apprentice of that light. And so we are to live brilliantly, my friends. Live brilliantly. And that's something, you're probably sick of hearing me say the word brilliant in sermons. Um, Jesus is brilliant. He's brilliant not only in the sense that he is the world's most ingenious human being. Like the conversations he gets into, the traps that they try to put him in, and Jesus winds him way, his way through and then shows and exposes their evilness and, exp- and reveals his goodness. I, it's mind-blowing. I mean, if the, none of this is true and some just mere human being wrote this, they were the most brilliant human being in all of existence. Jesus is brilliant, but I don't just mean smart. I mean, he radiates the life that we all long for. He is full of light. That's our Jesus. And so we are to live brilliantly. And so wherever you walk, there is divine and supernatural light. In Pleasanton, in Livermore, in Dublin, wherever you walk as a follower of Christ, there is divine and supernatural light. In Trader Joe's, there is divine and supernatural light. In the coffee shop that you go into, there is divine and supernatural light. On campus, whatever school you're going to, there is divine and supernatural light because the one who is the light lives within you and in your home, divine and supernatural light. Friends, live brilliantly. Heavenly Father, you are good to us. Thank you for shining your light on us. Uh, We love you. Lord, um, I, I do pray that we would see you more clearly today by the power of your word through your spirit teaching us for the glory of Christ. The Father would be seen, Lord. We love you. Amen.